Before we begin today's show, I'd like to say a big thank you to today's sponsor, Kiehl's. As an award-winning skincare brand that was founded in 1851, Kiehl's is scientifically formulated to respect, restore, and strengthen the skin. Kiehl's and I are also on similar missions within the LGBTQ community. I love that the brand has just announced a partnership with Just Like Us, a leading LGBTQ charity that supports young people in the UK by eliminating homophobic, biphobic, and transphobic bullying in schools, which is so incredibly important. Head to keels.co.uk to find out more about this brilliant initiative, as well as their amazing products. One of the most prolific tattoos seen on the TV is probably the Olympic rings tattoo. They are pretty much a rite of passage for the few who have trained hard enough to qualify for the Olympic Games. And as a sportsman myself, it's such a natural thing to want to tattoo some of the biggest physical achievements that require so much mental strength, discipline and training to actuate onto my body. These tattoos are a celebration of effort and triumph. I love it. I love watching you train. You were doing like this, um, the guy was hitting there and he was like, one, two, three, and then you just fucking smashing it. <laughs> On the third one, I was like, my God! I was like, fully adrenaline. <laughs> right, we ready to go? Yeah. Okay, so you can probably tell I got really into researching this week and for good reason. My guest this week is Will Bailey, someone who, in my opinion, truly put British Paralympic table tennis on the map. Will's consistent drive to succeed has meant that his sporting career has grown from a letter from his mother demanding he be allowed to do PE at school to becoming the Class 7 Paralympic champion in Rio 2016. He also played in Beijing in 2008 and famously won silver in London 2012. Currently, Will is world number one and world champion and he's now in training to defend his Paralympic title in Tokyo and in 2017 was awarded an MBE for his work in the sport. He's been a trailblazer from the start, from the trial drug he went on to beat his childhood cancer diagnosis, to being the first person on Strictly with his condition, arthrogoposis, which affects all four of his limbs, to becoming world number one in a new classification bracket, something he was told he'd never be able to do. Now, we did talk about this in the interview, but then this happened. Yeah, well, basically, so the classic So, I'm going to try to explain it here. In the Paralympics, competitors are classed in brackets based on ability. Will was originally assessed as class six. And as a class six player, Will had reached number five in the world rankings and consequently joined the British team that would be heading to Beijing for the Paralympics in 2008. However, just before the game started, he was reclassified to Class 7 for more able-bodied athletes. His ranking immediately dropped, and his chances of winning gold that year evaporated. Now, I didn't realise this, which is why I wanted to flag it, because often, reclassification of Paralympic athletes can have a significant impact on the athlete's ability to compete. But in true Will Bailey fashion, he just tackled his new hurdle head on and became top of his new class. 
His tattoos are a triumph of his successes with Rio and Beijing Olympic tattoos on his thigh, an English lion from his first England top on his stomach and a full sleeve. But upon reflection, his Olympic tattoos are only the games he felt he failed in, not of the one where he won gold, an ode to his constant drive to better himself. For me, the most important thing is to never think you're you know, when things are going badly, that it's it's going to carry on that way. And to, when things are going well, that it's going to carry on that way. I think just staying straight down the middle and trying to take one day at a time, it sounds cheesy, but trying to be 1% better every single day, that's all I try and do. Get into training and try and improve a little tiny bit, even if it's like a millimetre, you know, like a millimetre step every day. And I think 99% of people probably won't do that. So... You, if you can search for inside you of yourself, like to try and get that 1% out of you that no one else will do, then that'll make the difference. Anyone can do it, it's just a mental game and but never give up on, on your dreams. I'm your host, Gareth Thomas, and welcome to Skin Deep. Well, I just want to start it out. Obviously, this is Skin Deep, which is the story behind people's tattoos which I feel tells a lot about the person and I know you've got a few tattoos yeah but I think a really important part of your life is how you reached certain tattoos like how your journey ended up with that with that tattoo being your destination so where I want to start is at the start and I mean like so when you was when you was about to be born did your parents know that you was going to have a disability at that early age no no but my brother has got a disability in, in one arm it's arthrogryphosis and it is hereditary but there was like a less than sort of 20 percent chance that i was going to have the sort of arthrogryphosis as well but yeah I, I got it in all four limbs so yeah so it's a bit it was a bit of a surprise actually that there was so much to do for the for the doctors when i was born so 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 when did they when did they find out that you had, had arthrogryphosis it's a long word isn't it yeah it mate, it's any, anything more than three syllables oh, no. i'm struggling oh, no, with. so I, th- I think firstly explain exactly what that is and then kind of explain when you first found out or your family first found out that you was you you had this yeah yeah so i was, I was born with this condition called arthrogryphosis and it's like it's like a greek name for like curved joints and it's difficult to open my hands and they were basically born like that so right curved round and and couldn't open them at all and also in my feet so i was like my feet were born back to front so like literally the other way around and obviously had a lot of surgeries as soon as I was born to try and straighten them out and to try and straighten my legs out and basically to get me able to walk, you know. So that that was the condition and mum and dad knew exactly what, what I needed to do because my mum's got it in her legs. So I was quite lucky, I think, in that way, you know, that I had that upbringing where she never really saw it as a disability. It was just no excuses, you know, you've just got to get yeah, on with right. it kind of thing. And I think looking back, I kind of owe her one for that. So did that, did that delay your developments? That, did that delay when you could start walking? Did that delay anything else like as, as children mature into doing kind of what you could deem as normal things? Yeah, yeah, it did. It, it, it delayed my walking. I think I was quite, I was, I was a bit, it was a lot, a lot further on. So I think it was about four or five. But by the time I actually started properly walking, um, most of my childhood during that really early stage, 
was in plaster. So I was like having one operation and then I was sort of recovering and then having another operation and recovering. So most of that childhood, that first four or five years was at operations to reset my feet. And also I was in the frames where you kind of like have a frame on your leg, you know, and you've probably seen it and like you sort of tighten the frames and your bones sort of straighten during the time. So most of my childhood was in that sort of state. So it took me a long time to sort of get over those surgeries and then start walking again. And yeah, and it, it, they worked and they're successful. So it was, it was good. But that must have been like, that's a painful childhood. Like that, that you know, I, I, I don't know anybody who's got this, but I can only imagine like mm. having your legs mm. probably forced to be straightened when the easiest thing is to let them kind of mm. deform. Mm. Must be a, painful thing to go through every single day like oh yeah it was it was so painful oh, it's, it's, yeah it's just so painful but you become numb to it a little bit when you're that age as well you kind of think everyone's like that and you kind of don't really you're so resilient you know at that age you don't really see the negative side you just see sort of the positive side and like I said like I was lucky to have my mum there who was kind of like tough you know character where she was just like get on with it I think that that actually helped me because like if I would have felt sorry for myself it would have been hard to get over that so what about schooling then going to school how was yeah so I think that my mum was such a strong person she was kind of like old school mentality where she 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 said there was no excuses you know whatever I needed to do I mean got a quick quick story about my mum like when I first started primary school they said I couldn't do PE and uh, my mum my mum said that he's doing PE and I wasn't allowed to play football because I couldn't put football boots on. And she said, well, he can wear trainers and if, if he gets an injury, then just blame me. And she, she went down there with a letter, signed a letter and the PE teacher kept it and he sent it to me like a year ago, this letter from my mum saying she demands, <laughs> it says on the letter, that Will Bailey takes part in PE. So yeah, he's just, uh, it's a funny, she's that sort of character, so yeah. So what, what, what was schooling like for you then? Because I think children, school, what we learn about each other, what we learn about others can be a difficult place if you're in any way different to everybody mm. else. Yeah, it was it was hard. You know, I'm not going to lie. I think, to be honest, that really early school was, was like, I just found it annoying because when we're doing like running and stuff, I was really slow and I didn't know why. And I was really competitive, even at like five, six. You know, I wanted to win the races and I was always last. And I was like, what is going on? Like, what's wrong with my legs? Like, I know the feeling. Yeah, I was like, what is going on here? And I remember going back to my mum every day, like after doing races at school, going, I'm the slowest person in the whole school here. What's going on? Why am I so slow? And she never said it was because of my disability. She just said, oh, you're going to have to run faster, like find a way to run faster or something like that. So at school, I didn't really know that I had any kind of disability um, until it was secondary school. And obviously, then people look at you differently and stuff like that. And they, you know, they might comment on why you can't open your hands or stuff like that. But at primary school, it was, it was kind of like just frustrating more than anything. Did you find that difficult, maybe like dealing with comments mm. or um, dealing with exclusion, maybe? I don't know. I, I, oh, know, yeah. I sense somebody who has a real resilience, but it's difficult at a young age. Oh, yeah. I mean, just like anyone, you can act like you're all fine with it. But like deep down, it was really hard. You know, it was tough to overcome those moments. It was tough, especially at secondary school. I think when people just ask why you can't do things, you know, and why you can't open your hands and 
why your feet are so small and why are you walking like that and stuff like that. Yeah. I always had to sort of explain myself and I was always very, I don't know, almost aggressive towards it. It kind of right. made me feel aggressive. Like it made me feel I couldn't back down. I wanted to be sort of proud of who I was and I, I wanted people to know that I was proud of who I was. So I was... I wasn't like defensive about it. I was like, this is me, you know, this is what, this yeah. is who I am. You know, I can't help it. Basically. I used to say like, this is what I, this is what I am. You know, yeah. my mum always made me feel like I should be proud of who I am and, and what my condition was. So, but obviously when I got home, I was like feeling really down some days and obviously like anyone, like I was like, why are they yeah. looking at me funny or why are they saying that I can't do this and I can't do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm going to attempt to say the word now. So did you, did, <laughs> did it come a point in your childhood where you dealt with the arthrogryposis? Yeah, yeah, good one. Right? Nailed it. And, and, and you're like, right, okay, as far, clinically now, okay, we've, we've, you know, we've dealt with it, we can move on, and you've dealt with it with yourself. Was there a time in your childhood where the doctor said, right, okay, you know, he's been in the straps, everything's fine. And you've dealt with it physically and mentally as as a child. You felt right, okay, this is fine. I deal with it. I live with it. Yeah, I think, I think to be honest, like it, it got swept to one side because I got another disease during that time. So when I was seven years old, when I was sort of having the operations and that, they all stopped. So I didn't actually ever finish my operations on my legs or anything like that because when I was seven, obviously I got a serious illness. So I mean, I just that got sort of like forgotten about. And I kind of like, yeah. I just had to stay alive. That was, my main, that was my main objective, really. And my parents' main objective, you know, it just sort of got forgotten about. I'm glad you went into that because I think you are managing to paint a really accurate picture of your mm. kind of final destination of one of your tattoos, which I want to get to. So mm -hmm. when you say it's really obvious, at seven, you was diagnosed mm -hmm. with a form of cancer. Yeah. So I was seven years old and I was just in the bath my mum was in there with me and she saw a lump on my neck she thought I'd been in a fight or something and she said if someone punched you in the in the in the neck here and I said no and then she goes oh that's not right you've got a lump on your neck and then I went to the doctors the next day and yeah I mean a week later I was in Great Ormond Street Hospital getting treatment for his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma which is like a blood cancer it was kind of just surreal in a way I mean I was back at Great Ormond Street Hospital but in a different ward obviously in Giraffe Ward and it was just a weird weird experience because my mum's such a strong person and I saw her cry for the first time and I knew I was in trouble you know even at that age I knew I was in I knew I knew something serious was going on and at that age you were actually aware of what's I think you were quite aware of what's going on like I saw my mum crying outside my front door and she didn't know I saw her so she'd always try and hide it from me. But I remember her running across the road to a neighbour and then like them hugging each other. And I remember thinking, oh God, like this is all because of me. Like this is what's going on here. And I, yeah, yeah I even, I, I knew exactly what was going on. I even asked her if I was going to die. <laughs> I said, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember at that age, you know, I said, um, I've had enough of treatment. I don't want to go to hospital anymore. But seven, I said, that's enough. I just want to go home and relax. Yeah. And I just said to her, if I don't go back, will I die? And she just said, yeah. So I, was, so I remember just going straight to my room, getting my bag and never complaining about it again. Never, 
never really asking her again. And it was just kind of like, just get on with it. Like, I've just got to do it. But she always said to me, I'll be all right if I just get the treatment and if I do do the things that I need to do. So I had that positive outlook as well. But yeah, it kind of scared me a little bit, you know. So they caught it early enough, yeah? Yeah, it was touch and go the whole time. Like, I've spoken to the doctors about it since. Obviously, when I, I have to go back because I was on a trial drug. So I still go back every year to see how it affects me and how it's affected me, you know, in my heart and stuff like that. Obviously, it's just, it was a strong drug for like a kid, for like a seven-year-old to have. But yeah, it was it was touch and go. And I knew it was. I had the feeling, you know, when you can sense your family. And there's a lot of people like visiting me. I lost all my hair, which is horrible, you know, and I felt, uh, yeah, I felt terrible for a bit. But I mean, yeah, it's just, you're so resilient at that age. I mean... Yeah, I don't, I don't know how I'd cope with it now, but yeah, I was. I was well, I, 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 I think you say you're so resilient at that age. I think you take some credit away from the fact that you were so resilient at that age. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure many people could be so resilient at that age. So on your on your arm there with the London 2020, you've got a full sleeve there. Yeah. And when you, when you talk about things you want to see that motivates you. Yeah. That's a pretty full sleeve. Like it's floral, is it? Yeah. As it's in, just the floral. It's shaded. Yeah, it's shaded, just a floral sleeve. It's a lot of sort of roses and there's perseverance in the in the sleeve. So it's just sort of in writing, the London okay. tattoo. But to be honest, like, I just went there and I said, I want a sleeve. And it was kind of like put together ad hoc, you know what I mean? Yeah. But now if I was to go back and I want to get, eventually I want to get another sleeve, but it will be much more planned out. I'll do it exactly how I want it. But here it was kind of like just like put it in and yeah, it was what it was. But I, I think I think sometimes things like that, mind, they kind of happen for a reason and whatever yeah. that reason was will become kind of, I suppose, clearer to you in time. Like I actually spoke about this in a previous episode, but I have a tattoo that didn't have any particular meaning when I first got it, but is now changed with time to mean something very special to me and represents someone who was very close to me. But I'd like to move on to something now that really yeah. excited me when I was looking you up. Mate, I call it ping pong. Yeah. I call it ping pong. <laughs> and I enough, love a bit mate. of ping pong. No, How do you get, like after after all of this, like we've, I think you've painted the picture of your growing up mm-hmm. and your childhood. How do you get into ping pong? I know. Like I know. how? I know. Well, yeah, it's like I was always into sport. I'm from a very sporty family and I love I love it. And I was playing a lot of rugby, football, cricket, all of these sports. And I had a Hickman line in, so a line that was just attached to me constantly. And my grandma thought, oh, it's a good idea that he carries on playing sport. You know, he needs to have that competitive side to him. And she bought me a mini table tennis table. Obviously, it's non-contact, so I could, I could just play it. And I, I loved it. You know, as soon as I started playing it, I played it so much in hospital that when I got home, I beat my brother at it. And he's like a really, he's really good sportsman. He's three years older than me. And I remember yeah. feeling really good about myself. And, and then I just joined a club. And from there, I just, just got obsessed with it. So yeah, it's a, it's a weird way to get into it. But yeah, it's, it's cool. I love the sport. It's giving people as many opportunities as you can. All yeah. of a sudden you realize that someone's going to connect to that one thing and your connection to ping pong was almost like a natural connection. Exactly. It's just you, you'd never been open to that kind of to that environment. So at what age then did you realize, because obviously, you know, we've spoken about the cancer, mm-hmm. you've still got arthrogoposis, mm-hmm. right? Where you're 
four limbs. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say disabled. Yeah, I'm not yeah, sure. yeah. I hope that's not an offensive word. No, no, no. So, so growing up then, did you have to combat that atrogoposis to be able to hold a table tennis mm. bat, for instance? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had, to, I had to have it specially sort of like chiseled down so I could hold it properly. But I think the more stuff you go for in your life, you know, you you become stronger. And I always used it as motivation for myself to be better. I knew that I had these disadvantages, but it made me want to work harder. So I just thought that if I've got this disability, then to be the best in my club, I have to work twice as hard as everyone else. And I have to do twice as much and I have to be twice as, you know, clinical. So I just used it as a motivation, really, for me to be as good as I can be. I never used it as a sort of excuse to sort of not perform or or something like that, which I guess is from my mum. So in your first club, that table tennis club you joined, because I got a lovely quote from you. I love this. And I think this sums you up. I haven't spoken to you. We're just like encapsulate you. I love to win. That's all I think about. So when you joined your when you joined your first table tennis club, Mm -hmm. were you then playing against able-bodied athletes yeah and you had that motivation still not to just participate but to win yeah yeah exactly I know I was no good you know when I first started and even started playing internationals I I lost my first match international matches for two years I didn't win a match but I was so determined and I guess looking back at it it's probably because of the childhood that I had the upbringing that I had and the, the sort of roller coaster of sort of ups and downs that I had you know it was a never say die attitude and I was so hungry I was hungrier than what I've ever seen in table tennis I didn't see anyone who had that desire you know so I think that there was no real natural talent there I just had I just wanted it so bad I was desperate I was serving practice every day for like two hours after training and people were like Will you you need to get a life but I just you know that's just the way I was so I think that competitive instinct was was just natural inside me, and it was like an animal, you know, trying to trying to win. Like I was desperate. My my old coach said to me, "Well, you look like you want to kill someone when you're playing them." Sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just that's the way I was. I used to kind of do a lot of things, extra stuff after, and people used to say to me. Like, you know, I nickname Alfie and say, Alfie, didn't you realise like that there's more to life than rugby training? Or there's more to life than going to the gym? Or there's more to life than analysing? And I'd be like, yeah, do you know what? There is more to life, but my life will be enjoyable when I'm successful at my sport, like when I'm successful at my chosen career. So I think that I understand that mentality, I understand where you're coming from, that drive to be successful. So when was you, I suppose, spotted as being as being a talent? Yeah, when I was when I was about eighteen years old, I was playing for my county, and one of the one of the Paralympic boys came up to me and he goes, you know, you could potentially get into the Paralympic team. And I said, oh, I don't have a disability. I don't have any. I don't have a disability though, mate. And he goes, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mate, I love that. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, <laughs> he goes, you do. He goes, look at your hands, you know, and look at your legs. And I said, oh, sorry. I said, I don't have a disability. And I remember getting really offended by it and I remember going back to back home and going this guy asked me if I want to play in the Paralympics and I haven't got a disability I don't know what he's on about I remember being that delusional you know like wow. thinking like that. yeah so and then every time I saw him every year there's a couple of years that went past and he, he was saying to me come just come to a camp come to a training camp and see what you think and eventually after like a lot of persuading I went and I lost to everyone and I gained that respect. I, I just thought, wow, this is going to be 
different to what I thought. It was like harder than what I thought. It was harder than I ever could have imagined. I just thought I was going to come in and be too good because I, I didn't think I had a disability. I just thought I was, I was, yeah. no, I was a normal person playing against people that were disabled. And, but yeah, so it was a real eye-opener when I went to the National Centre and I started playing with those guys. And I remember going back home going, oh, these guys are really good. You know, these guys are amazing. They train every day. They're training like five hours, six hours a day. And I was like, I want to do that. You know, I want to be as good as them. And that's, that's how it started, really. Yeah, so that, I suppose then we start the journey to your first Olympic ga- games mm. and also then close to a point of a reference of of one of your tattoos. So mm-hmm. Beijing, Beijing 2008, mm-hmm. getting getting selected in the GB team. Was that getting selected in 2008 like a given? No, not at all. No, no. I actually, I didn't actually qualify. It was like top 16 automatically qualify and I was 25, but I, I luckily got a wildcard selection. So I knew very late. I remember getting a phone call from one of the national coaches and just chucking my phone up in the air when I found out I was going to go I was so happy like you tell yourself and you tell other people what you're going to achieve but deep down I didn't really know to be honest if I was going to ever get to one so just to get to one I was like I was like so happy mate you don't have to tell me you're driven you don't have to tell anyone you're driven so after after being on the on the top stage in in 2008 knowing 2012 Mm. was going to be London what was your end game then what was your focus on I remember losing to probably, we played China in team event in the first round, which is a horrible draw, you know, like, so we played them in the team event in the first round of Beijing 2008. I remember like getting laughed at, you know, smirked at by some of the guys and like, they were just too good. Like, and I didn't have any answers and I just felt like angry and, and like I had a point to prove when I left Beijing 2008. And um, I went to China to train for like six months as soon as I got home. And I wanted to train with some of those guys and I wanted to learn from them. And yeah, it was just more angry and more like I let myself down. But I didn't, you know, I was still looking back at it. I, I played as well as I could have played, you know, that was my level. But yeah, but yeah I, I was more like a desire and anger that was constantly with me. I don't know if that's a good thing, but it's probably normal, I think, for a lot of sportsmen that you've just got this chip on your shoulder that you just want to prove yourself, you know, and that, yeah. was, that was what I had and I probably still have, you know, that chip on your shoulder that you want to you wanna get better or you want to beat everyone and, yeah, it's just the way it is. Yeah, and then obviously London 2012, the mm. moment I feel like Will Bailey came on everybody in the UK's radar, mm. all of a sudden you became this household name that I think brought a whole new dimension, not to Paralympics, but to table tennis. I feel it just became this sport that all of a sudden people were really engaged at. Mm. What was it like for you at 2012 in London, being part of the Olympic Games? Yeah, it was, there's no words. I mean, I felt like a superstar, you know, like just to be a part <laughs> of it. And, you know, it was just the crowds and the way they made me feel like I don't know if I ever feel like that ever again because I remember just getting walked into the arenas and like 10,000 people or XL so 6,000 people were singing Will Bailey Will Bailey Will Bailey and I just felt (laughs) electricity throughout my whole body you know I'm not used to that you know I've never heard anyone sing my name ever you know and to have that it was like it it gave me like chills when I was walking out and I felt proud just to just to be there I just felt like this massive feeling of pride and kind of yeah just an amazing experience so you have 
an Olympic tattoo, yeah? Where, where, is, where is your Olympic tattoo? Yes, it's on my leg. So it's on your left thigh. That, that, is, not, that is not a small tattoo. No, it's, it's not. That's a big tattoo. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So it's, it's a Beijing 2008 Olympic tattoo of your first exactly. Olympics. D- did you then, after London 2012, when you had a silver, did you decide to mark your body with anything to do with London 2012? As Yeah. Can you see that? So yeah, so yeah, on your right arm, what's that? One of them's the 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 London. Oh right. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So on your right arm, just under the elbow, you have the actual Olympic sim, the London Olympic single with the rings in it. Yeah. And London 2012. All oh, right. Okay. So then, yeah. moving on from yeah. that tattoo, obviously, mate, the moment that you will probably be apart from Strictly, I'm sure, yeah. ever remembered yeah. for. Exactly, mate. Winning gold in Rio. Yeah. Like, Mate, I haven't spoken to you and heard like you know this journey. Yeah. Surely that final destination must have been. Oh yeah. Oh mate, I don't know. Describe it to me. How did yeah. that feel to win? Well, it was just you know you must know what it's like when you win something. You know you've won so much in your career. Like when you've worked so hard for it. You know you you were. <laughs> I followed your career and you know just the <laughs> feelings that you get when you win a big trophy or when you win that event. I mean it it lasted for me for like the pure elation of it lasted for like a few seconds, like five seconds or something when I realized what I'd done and it was like electricity flying through my body. I felt like I could have jumped on the ceiling, you know, I felt (laughs) like I could have done anything. And then it just felt like, Oh, relief. Yeah. So I just felt like I'd done something and I've, I could, my mind could rest, you know, I've done, I've achieved my ultimate goal. And I, at that moment I felt relaxed and I, yeah, it was a, it was a great feeling. Because I, I think what's really relevant about that as well is, is maybe something people don't know, and I think listeners to this, it's really important they know, is that you actually beat a Brazilian. Mm. So like that in itself must have been a, a, a tough environment. And, mm. and I just think so much of what you've overcome in the past. So do you think your overcoming of your disability and not really kind of seeing a disability helped when you had to overcome in the final of the Olympics playing against like a hometown hero to block them out. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And I think it's quite easy for me to put things into perspective. And I think that's quite important with sport, especially when you're playing like a skilled sport, like like table tennis, where, you know, if your hand's a bit wobbly, if you're a bit twitchy, it can become, there's nowhere to hide. You know, there's no teammates, there's, no, there's nowhere to hide. You're on the table and like everyone's watching your match and, I kind of can put it into perspective, especially with the things that I've overcome, as you say, in, in my life. I kind of just thought, well, I'm here now and I've trained hard. I might as well just go for it and give it everything I can. And I think that that mentality definitely helped me. So did you mark your body at all with anything to do with what has to be one of your greatest achievements? <laughs> no, everyone thinks that. No. I know. And everyone thinks that's weird, but... I know everyone's like you've got Beijing 2008 tattoo where you you got knocked out in the group and you got like London when you lost in the final but yeah I di- I never got a tattoo and I don't know I guess I use tattoos as kind of like things to motivate me and and like things to drive me on and I try not to think about winning too much you know too much about yeah. like winning Rio if that makes sense I just think about and maybe when I retire I probably will get a tattoo Every year. Yeah. But like I like I like to look at the upsets. I like to look at some of the bad things that's happened in my career to drive me on. And I think if I always saw Rio on my I'd always look at that and think, is is it ever gonna get any better, you know? Is it ever gonna yeah, get right. yeah. 
I, on my right shoulder, have a tattoo of a, of a scorpion. It kind of sits over my shoulder, almost in the position kind of to attack. Yeah. And what that symbolizes for me every time I look at it, rather than a lot of people say you have, you know, an angel on one shoulder or a devil on another or just an angel and you know, that's kind of your guardian. For me, it's a reminder, a scorpion, a scorpion's bite is very deadly. It's a reminder not to do any of the negative or bad things that I had done before because it's going to bite me. And if it bites me again, then who knows what could happen? Or in my mind, as I look at it, if it bites me again, then that'll be the end of me. Yeah. So do you, apart from you have a full sleeve on your right-hand side, you've got Beijing 2008 on your left thigh. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other tattoos, which is marked up at this point, quite an uh, impressive existence? Yeah, I've got a, a lion. I don't know if you can see it. One sec. Oh, right. Oh, so a Brit. So on your, so on your right-hand side of your, basically on your stomach. Yes, yeah, so like British lion, yeah. Oh, okay. And apart from maybe I think what people might think is the obvious yeah. representing Great Britain, is there is there a meaning that, that that lion means to you personally? Yeah, I think I think it's it's more than just uh, the the Great Britain, but that is a big thing, you know, to represent Great Britain. I was so proud, but I think just I remember giving giving my first shirt. And it, I remember thinking how cool it was, and it was a Great Britain shirt, and it had a lion, it had that lion on the back, and I remember, yeah. I remember thinking this is like the best day of my life when I put it on. I was like so proud, and that symbol means a lot to me. You know, it means yeah. it means a lot to me. So I think it's just, yeah, I just, I like it. I like having it on me, and just it's just a part of me. And I remember feeling like that symbol meant meant so much to me because it was like the lion it was like fearless and it was like passionate and i loved the, i love the symbol and that's why i got it it's kind of like i suppose carrying something that you feel wants to represent you mm. all the time like oh you represent that all the time when you're training mm. or any like minor events so what motivates you now then like i i find it amazing you you had beijing you got silver mm-hmm. in 2012 so you've marked them journeys, okay, because actually the reality is you want to get to gold. Mm-hmm. So you want to use not just the success, you want to use uh, things that have been difficult to get through to find your success. Now you've found your success, mm. and obviously Tokyo will be coming up. What do you use now to drive you forward? Or for instance, when we're talking about skin deep, talking about tattoos, if you look at your body, you see London, it's a failure. I want to, I want to be success. Mm. Beijing, it's a failure. I want to be success. What motivates you now to be a success at defending it in Tokyo? Yeah, I think it's just as much to prove people wrong and to to get the best out of myself and be the best player I, I can be. I think when you get to this stage in your career, you know, it's my fourth games now. It's like it's a lot of games I've played that's going coming up, and I think I don't know how long I can carry on doing that. And I, I think it would be kind of sad if I if I left any stone unturned in this games in Tokyo because I want I want people to look on YouTube in a few years time and say whoa Will Bailey look at what he did in Tokyo like that was him at his best and I don't believe I've ever done it I've never gone in really really at my very best and I think that what that's what motivates me because like you know I want people to look at me in the future and go wow he was all right he was he gave it everything <laughs> he gave it everything that's all I want people to sit yeah he did it he, you know and I think when you say giving everything, I think you, to your sport, have given everything. But I think 
you're one of of maybe very few people who've had the opportunity to transcend your sport. Mm. And I think by transcending your sport, you've actually really inspired a lot more than just table tennis players. Obviously, you know, we're going to talk about, I think talk about the fact you're on Strictly, but more importantly, what you represented on Strictly. Because I remember, like I watched Strictly, we sat down, me and my husband sat down, mm-hmm. And mate, we were in tears when you <laughs> did your and, and it all makes sense to me now when you did your seven years. You know the seven years song. Yes, yeah. What was the concept? What were you thinking behind that? And what was the message you want to send out? I can probably say, but I'd rather I'd rather you tell everybody. Yeah, well, like, do you know what? Strictly was a it was a cool it was a cool time. It was brilliant to be a part of it. But I mean, it's so different to the person I am as well. It's in a weird way, like as you said, I've had quite a tough upbringing in terms of the things that I've had happen to me and I don't easily show my weaknesses you know and I, I, I don't easily let them out or tell people about them or talk about them and I think in that dance it was all about my sort of childhood and my struggles and disappointments or my insecurities so I found that pretty tough but the reason why I thought I could do it is because I thought that if I showed my vulnerable side you know then it might help other people that were in my position I think it was important that I put myself out there for those people, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, how do you, how do you feel then like when you're representing those people? Mm. I I remember it. So obviously, you got injured and you had to pull mm. out of the show. But I remember there being a saying by Craig Gravel Hallward. He said he said you you needed to have like. I don't know, soft ankles or <laughs> something to do with that. And you was like, mate, I don't have ankles. I yeah. have soft ankles. How, like, it's it's I, frustrating. I, I, yeah, how does, how does that kind of feel? Because you have somebody, may, do, do you may feel like you maybe have somebody who's not understanding your disability or understanding why you can't Yeah, it's, it's really frustrating, but I can understand it's hard to judge as well. So I can understand from their point of view. But what I didn't want was a sympathy vote. I wanted to get marked down, if anything. I, I said to them, because we had a meeting with them before it started, and they wanted to see what my limitations were and like what I can and can't do. Yeah. And I pretty much said, you know, I'm pretty okay. You know, I'm good to go. I can't open my hands, but I can still do things. You know, I can still do what I want to do. And so I didn't really want any excuses. But yeah, it's kind of frustrating because you. it's just so hard. I, there's never been anyone with my kind of disability on Strictly and I don't I don't know if there ever will be again I haven't got a good limb so it was quite challenging I've got to be honest it was it was hard but yeah. but I tried my best and and uh, my competitive side came out so I wanted good marks so it's like yeah. well you can't judge me down you can't mark me down for something that's literally impossible but then yeah. but then it, it was what it was like it was it's, it's so hard to judge but yeah when I got injured I was devastated because I was really enjoying it and I was having, I was growing through the competition mentally, but I was getting more confident and I was starting to believe in myself. So it was, it was yeah. a bad time to get injured, but, and a horrible yeah. injury as well. It was painful as hell. So yeah. Again, hearing all this confidence, hearing this fact that you went on strictly, hearing the fact that you have this drive, mm-hmm. hearing the fact you love a crowd, yeah. you love to perform in front of a crowd. Mm-hmm. A little birdie tells me you you went to the Brits Academy School exactly. for performing arts. Two years, yeah, two years at the Brits, and I did acting. So I did, and that's a strange one as well. Like I I, I remember going there auditioning and doing the monologue, and I I, I never thought I was going to get in. And again, looking back at it, it's probably my past. You know, having that bluff, having that ability to sort of say everything's all right, 
And I kind of used that in my acting career to get into the British school. I was kind of like acting like I was really confident and stuff. And really, I thought I was terrible. But like to get into that was cool. And it was a strange one as well, looking at why I did Strictly, because I always refused to do dance when I went to acting school. So I just did acting. And everyone was like, can you do th physical theatre? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm just going to do acting. I'm just going to stick to acting. And could you do a bit of dance? And I was like, no, I'm just going to do acting. So when they asked me to do Strictly, I was like, oh, kind of thought, well, I can't, you know, I can't really do it. I remember telling my mum, and she goes, you can't do it. Like, you're just not going to be able to do it. Even my mum said that. So I was like, <laughs> and she's a fan, so I think she just didn't want to be embarrassed by me, you know, like trying to dance. But yeah, yeah it was, I guess I overcame that fear, really, of like not being able to dance. And yeah, I yeah. gave it a go. I think you've overcome many, many fears. I don't want to put you on the spot, you know. I think if you, if you can't find something that I think is mm. is qualifies for where you come from, then that's absolutely fine. But as somebody who's marked their body with so many things that talk of perseverance about not giving up, mm -hmm. what would be the one thing that you would kind of advise people for perseverance? To have a dream, to have a goal, to never let it go like you did. Well, I'd just say to them that for me, the most important thing is to never think you, you know, when things are going badly, that it's it's going to carry on that way. And to, when things are going well, that it's going to carry on that way. I think just staying straight down the middle and trying to take one day at a time, it sounds cheesy, but trying to be 1% better every single day. That's all I try and do and get into training and try and improve a little tiny bit, even if it's like a millimeter, you know, like a millimeter step every day and, I think 99% of people probably won't do that. So if you can search for inside you of yourself, like to try and get that 1% out of you that no one else will do, then that will make the difference. Anyone can do it. It's just a mental game and but never give up on, on your dreams. Love it. And you know, you never give up on yours, but and you ended up breaking all the rules by jumping God. on the table tennis table <laughs> at the end of the game. Yeah, like, breaking God, every God, table God. tennis rule ever. A yellow card, Will Bailey. A yellow card. <laughs> Live with the dream. <laughs> Man, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I can see it's, it's strange. You know, when you read so much about somebody um, and you think, you know, what other people are saying about somebody mm -hmm. defines him. But I think maybe how you describe your journey to Beijing, to your tattoos, to your gold in Rio, to hopefully your gold in Tokyo. I'd like to think listeners, because I know myself has taken a lot of inspiration for it, but you are, you are an absolute star. Cheers, mate. You're an inspiration to me, man. You're an inspiration to me. Top, uh, man. Take, take it care, easy, bud. Take care. Bye, man. Bye, bud. Thank you again for listening. I'm your host, Gareth Thomas, and this has been Skin Deep. If you like the show, then please go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe it means you'll never miss an episode and will help other people find us. And finally, a closing thank you to the partners of today's episode, Keels. Now, for all the bearded men out there, I'd recommend checking out their grooming solution, Nourishing Beard Oil, a lightweight beard oil that smooths facial hair and nourishes skin underneath. Their products are great, but what I love just as much is their philanthropic initiatives, including their partnership with Just Like Us. Just Like Us 
is a leading LGBTQ plus charity that was founded to support young people in the UK by eliminating homophobic, biphobic, and transphobic bullying in schools. Check out the brand and all the amazing things they are doing by visiting keels.co.uk.